Kansas City has a real deal, old school mob family, La Cosa Nostra family, Sicilian based, had the making ceremony, the whole nine yards, have made men, have associates. They're not very big, so it's like they're really not even as big as one big crew in Chicago. But we've got it all. We've got an underboss and who kind of doubled as a consigliere and our boss has a brother. It's a Savella family, Nick Savella. And, and Nick and his brother, Cork, kind of jointly, but Nick really ran the family. And then they had this underboss guy named Carl Tuffy DeLuna. The legends of America's mobs are woven into the fabric of society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the tales of these criminal organizations. Their stories of power, wealth, respect, family, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mobs may be over, organized crime continues to thrive, and the stories remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Gangland History Podcast, hosted by mob historian Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind organized crime in America. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Gangland History Podcast, formerly the Members Only Podcast. Uh, got another great episode today. Very, very excited. I've been waiting to talk to this guest for, for quite some time. They're one of the originals in the uh, mob podcasting genre, uh, and because I've I've heard the feedback and I'm trying to listen to to get out of the way, shut the heck up and let my guests talk. I'm just going to, I'm just going to introduce it and we're going to jump right in. Uh, the guest today is Gary Jenkins, retired Kansas city police detective, uh, and author, uh, uh, documentarian, uh, runs his own podcast of which now my name is very similar, uh, the gangland wire. Uh, and I'll just say, welcome Gary. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks, Jacob. Thanks for inviting me. I, I'm always happy to tell my story. And uh, I'm I'm excited to to hear your story. And we're kind of going to get into it front to front to back, cover to cover. Um, I'm excited to talk a little bit about Kansas City. It's not a subject we've talked about uh, a lot yet on my podcast. It it has a really 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 interesting history all the way from the beginning. And then Gary comes in, you know, right in the, in the middle of a lot of chaos, uh, some of which has been portrayed on the, on the big screen. And uh, if you've listened to Gary's podcast, Gangland Wire for any amount of time, one of the, one of my favorite qualities about Gary is in, I believe he kind of downplays how interesting his life has, has been. Um, <laughs> you've lived a really, really, really interesting, interesting life that for people like me that literally come from small town nowhere who have an interest in the genre, but have no real connections. Um, I'm just fascinated by it. And if you listen to your show, you really downplay it. Uh, you don't make too much out of yourself. And I think the, uh, some you know listeners like myself really appreciate your your modesty well thank you thank you i, I try i guess i was raised that way i don't know <laughs> yeah so you know let's just jump right in let's um let's talk a little bit about that so you know tell us about your early life where do you come from how were you raised what were your parents like uh and tell us about uh, a young young gary jenkins 
Oh, well, uh, I come from small-town America myself. Talk about coming from small-town. <laughs> it was about 1,600 people, and uh, my people were farmers, and I did not want to farm. <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what I wanted. We had horses, and, and I grew up in the 50s, and, and cowboy, the way cop shows are now, well, that's cowboy movies, and cowboy TV shows were that. They were the thing. Radio shows. I go back to the original Roy, uh, Lone Ranger on the radio, yep. and I wanted, when I grew up, I knew I wanted to be a cowboy. I wanted to have a horse. I wanted to have a 30-30 Winchester lever action rifle. I wanted to have a Colt 45 pistol and go out and, and save the settlers or the townspeople or whoever and, and be the good guy, wear the white hat. And, and you know, I did that. I grew up. I, I didn't get the Colt, the horse or the, or the Colt 45 or the Winchester, but I got a like a 70 uh, – 71 Plymouth Fury, uh, and, and I got a Winchester 12-gauge uh, shotgun, and I got a Model 59 Smith & Wesson 38, and they send me out to save the settlers or help the townspeople. <laughs> so so my childhood dreams came true. It, it reminds me. <laughs> Other than that, it was a pretty uneventful childhood. It reminds me a little bit if you've, um, you know, if you've watched some of, the, some of the Christmas movies that they show every year, it kind of reminds me of uh, – a young Ralphie from the, the Christmas, the Christmas <laughs> story. You had those, those kind of visions, uh, in your head of the, the Red Rider BB gun. I saved up and bought my own BB gun. Yeah. I had a BB gun and a BB pistol pretty early. I, I see you didn't shoot your eye out. So good, good job with that. I didn't shoot my eye out. <laughs> so, uh, so sounds like you grew up in the Midwest. What, um, and I, I can't remember if you've mentioned this before on your show, what, what city and state did you grow up in? It was Plattsburgh, Missouri. It's about 50 miles north of Kansas City. 50 miles north of so Kansas City. As soon as I turned 18, 19 years old, I came to the city to get a job. Um, I was not sticking around in a small town. I could not. I wasn't going to farm. My people were farmers. We had a, quite a little bit of farmland, actually, and my brother farmed it all his life. And, um, and do you come from two a— two younger a, brothers, they did farm. you come from a big family or a small family? Uh, four brothers. We had four brothers. And, uh, three, three. I had three brothers, so it was it was sports, fighting, uh, going, you know, hunting and fishing, and <laughs> and all the things that boys do. I uh, my mother was must have been a saint to put up with us. And do they uh, did did they become farmers? Did did they get involved in the family business? My, my oldest brother, he farmed all of his life. Okay, and uh, he died about four or five years ago. He was a little older than me, and and. My younger brothers didn't really. So um, right now I have some land. Uh, my other brother has some land. Another brother uh, sold his. And uh, so, you know, our cousins, we've we got a cousin that farmed all his life. So he's uh, he's a big, uh, what they call a um, contractor, a contract farmer. He's He pl he plants all the beans and corns and everything. And, you know, we I, I, don't, I go up and look at it, but I don't really do anything with it, neither – my other brother has horses and he lives up there, but that's, uh, okay. that's the extent of the farm. So you grew up pretty normal childhood. At what point did you, you know, when you graduated, did you, did you go to school? Did you go directly into law enforcement? Uh, tell us about your path after becoming a, becoming an adult. I had a checkered path. I took, I took the long way around. <laughs> I was always going to do everything my way. And I got married very young and had a child very young and uh, got a job, never went to college. I was, I was always the smart one. Uh, matter of fact, uh, one, of the, one of the 
memories, one of the most vivid memories I have is my mom and dad standing there talking and looking down at me and saying, well, my mom says, well, Gary's going to go to medical school. My dad says, oh, no, no, he's going to go to law school. And uh, so, you know, they had, everybody had big plans for me along those lines, but I just, I had other plans. And, and so I got a job at a factory. First thing I did get a job at a factory because uh, I was always going to do everything on my own. Everything, it was always about doing everything on my own. And so I worked at the factory in, in 1970. I went, uh, been there about five years and it's horrid, it's horrid work. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's, it's good work in, in as far as benefits and money for a young uneducated guy, but you know, it's horrid work. You just felt like when you came home from a day on the assembly line, somebody had been whacking you on the head with a two before all day. Uh, and I, I saw this ad for the Kansas City Police Department. They wanted to hire 350 guys. They got a big tax pass in the city. They were going to increase the strength of the force by 350 people. They had all kinds of money for new programs and things they were going to do. They, they did one of the early first cop show ever. They had a newsman ride along uh, in a district car, a patrol car one night, and made it into like a 30-minute show on the news one night and and i saw that and i thought you know this this looks right down my alley this looks like fun and there's you know there's a few cop shows on by then and kind of do you know i always wanted to be this cowboy and i always wanted to carry a gun and and help save people and protect them from the bullies and so i applied and it's kind of a funny thing is i walked up the steps the headquarters and a good friend of mine uh, bobby arnold was walking down the steps he was a year older than me, but we had been from adjoining farms. We'd rode horses together as kids. He wanted to be a cowboy too, <laughs> and uh, he wasn't going to farm. And he's walking down the steps, and I said, Bob, what are you doing here? And he said, I just got a job. <laughs> I said, well, I'm going to end up life for one. So, you know, we, we spent our career uh, a lot of time together, actually, in the intelligence unit. He was my partner in the intelligence unit for several years, but, uh, you know, got on and takes about a year or so time they do all the background and, and, and all that, but uh, no problems there. I didn't have, uh, I had a checkered history, but none of it really, <laughs> I, I, I never, I got away with it, my little discrepancies all my life. I, I, uh, uh, I was kind of a rounder when I was young, <laughs> but be that as it may, you know, I got on with the academy, the usual thing, go to the academy been however long it was, three months, I think, at the academy, and then you go out and you get a break-in officer. I'll never forget my break-in officer. <laughs> he told me, he said, it, it was pretty unstructured in 1971. It was a lot different than it is today. So, folks, this is not the way it is today, <laughs> but in 1971, it was different. And this guy, he's kind of a veteran. He probably had eight or nine years on, but he was kind of a veteran. And he told me, he said, yeah, he said, the only reason that I've got you to, to break in is because the captain wants to keep me under control and, and not, you know, keep me from doing some of the things I want to do. I said, oh, well, that's interesting. I said, well, okay. And, and I didn't, I didn't take, I never liked the guy, but you know, I, I made it. I'm, I'm a pretty bright guy. I, I can work around a lot of things and, and, uh, he was, he was the kind of guy that, uh, 
first little bit of corruption I ever saw <laughs> that I ever took part in. You know, we all have our little corruptions. Everybody yeah. out there's got little corruptions. And the first little corruption I saw, we, we stopped by the liquor store at Ninth and State Line. And he said, I'm going to go in here and see this guy. He said, you smoke. I, I didn't smoke. He said, you smoke and you smoke Winston's. I said, okay. And he smoked and he smoked Winston's. So we go in and we talk to the guy and he, you know, they chat back and forth. We kind of knew him, knew him and, and we're getting ready to leave. And, and the guy says, oh, he said, you, you want Cody a pack of cigarettes? And, and uh, he said, wait, well, yeah, I'll take a pack. And, and the guy looked at me and said, how about you? I said, well, yeah. He said, well, what do you smoke? I said, Winston's. <laughs> so uh, my break-in officer got two packs of Winston's that day instead of one. But you know, I only had to be with him about six weeks, I think, or a month. I can't, it wasn't a long time, and went out of my own, had my own district car for right off the bat. I got my own actual district, it was west side of downtown, down into the West Bottoms, at the stockyards at the time, and a lot of warehouses down there. And, and then downtown was in '71. It was really hopping. There was a ton of people downtown, banks downtown. They'd have a bank robbery once in a while, and and a lot of events downtown i was working days so it was it was pretty exciting i learned a lot but a few months later it, it wasn't like working what we call the east side it wasn't like working um, uh, trying to be politically correct here it wasn't like working the ghetto it wasn't like working the more poor neighborhoods and that's where the action was that's where the shooting was going on and <laughs> that's where the the uh, robbing and stealing the a lot of robbing and stealing. We'd have a bank robbery once in a while, but you'd you know you'd swing by about fifteen minutes after the uh, bank robbers had left, usually. Although there was there was a, one guy. We had one guy that got shot, uh, interrupted the bank robbery downtown during that time. I was off that day or something. But sergeant says, "Anybody want to go to one fifty sector?" I said, "Throw me, put me in, coach, put me in." <laughs> Uh, go out there to 150 sector, and it's a pretty small district, uh, 35th to 39th Paseo to Prospect, but it was hopping. I mean, it was it was lively. Had one had liquor stores on every corner, and and just you know, just a ton of criminals living within that boundaries and within the drug houses, and, and it had it all. Uh, and I got a district car out there, 154, and you know, I worked that for the next couple of years. A lot of fun. I, I really started. What I always liked was uh, was a lot of guys like to make arrests. A lot of guys like tack guys. They like to kick in doors. Mm -hmm. I like to develop information and and find out who's really doing stuff, and then try to set them up or make them on a case rather than just stopping car after car after car and, and that kind of thing. And and so, you know, out there we had, I had real deal criminals living out there and you'd see with a warrant sheet come out and there'd be people that, you know, had warrants on them. And then you'd like hear about somebody have, I remember this one little crew of, of uh, bad check writers and one of them lived in my district and one of them, one of their partners lived real close. And I, I don't remember how I found out about it. Maybe one of them had a warrant on him at one time and I started checking into them. I thought, well, these are real criminals. And they were professional fraudsters or professional bad check writers. They'd go, they'd go steal, go break into a business, steal a what they called a check protector machine. They'd steal a whole bunch of blank checks, and then they'd have other people that would go around and cash those checks. And so I figured out where one lived, and I'd sit on him for a little bit, find out what kind of car he drove, who came over to see him, and and then 
find and figure out where his other buddy lived and see him around the neighborhood and and maybe I stopped one of them one time and and he was like he started resisting him and I don't know he he didn't, he didn't check riders are not they're not like armed robbers he resisted a little bit but he he cut it short and he was carrying some stolen credit cards and, and so you know I started working on that I I found where they had a secret apartment where they uh, kept their stolen check protector and their extra checks. I got, uh, I got a guy, I turned a guy who I knew was running with them and, and kind of charmed him into saying, uh, he gave me an approximate area, 27th and Troost. So I just went over 27th and Troost and just started knocking on doors and, and finding this old guy said he was a landlord of an apartment building. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, they don't really live up there. They just come and go once in a while. So <laughs> I thought, ah, I've got them now. I, this <laughs> is their stash house. So I go down to fraud unit and, and get it. They get a search warrant and go and break in or, you know, kick in the doors. When you, they're not going to, nobody's going to there to even let you in. And I, actually, on that case, they didn't have to kick it in. The uh, the landlord was there. He let them in and found the check protector and the checks and, and all that and made some cases on them. So that was, you know, that really gave me a taste for that. Being a detective really gave me a taste for investigations. And, you know, just kept working on things like that. Came up with some other schemes that people were doing. Found a drug house. My, my buddy that lived with, lived at, that had 153 just north of me, we got a... a we were district officers, so we had to answer calls. <laughs> and so we'd take turns. We wanted to watch this drug house. We didn't really know what a drug, nobody too much knew what a drug house was in 1971, or 72, 73 by then. Nobody really knew what a drug house was unless you were out there. And our narcotics unit, they didn't work uh, black narcotics. They didn't work African-American neighborhood for narcotics back then. They worked the white boys over on the east, uh, west side, the hippies. They were after hippies for narcotics back then. And I found this drug house and, and had some informant told me because I'd always working on developing informants. And so we'd go across the street to abandoned house. One of us would get on the second floor and watch and write down license numbers and see what was going on while the other one would handle both. You know, if the call came out for 154, 153 would jump in there and handle it if he could. And if he couldn't, then I'd hear it on my walkie talkie and I'd just run down out the back door and go, go handle the call. And then I'd do, then I'd do the same thing for him and he'd do the same thing. And, and finally, one time we were, we were so stupid, we didn't know what we were doing. But we we missed a drug, drug delivery. We just, you know, nobody was telling us what to do. We were just making no it up on book. the fly. <laughs> <laughs> no rule book and no experience. And I saw this lady walk by and she had a big grocery sack. And she kind of walked, it was, and she drew my attention. She was, I didn't know what the deal was, but there was something just, you know, you just draws your attention, something she doesn't fit in the neighborhood. She walked about three or four steps by the sidewalk that went up the front door, and all of a sudden she just stopped, turned around, made almost like a, a kind of a hurried rush up to the front door, and then she hit the top of the porch, the door opened, and, and she just went right in and closed right behind her. I thought, oh, 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 oh. Uh -oh. I called <laughs> Walt. I said, come on. I said, there's something. They just did something. They just got a delivery, I think. They, in, in my mind, that was a delivery, and I'm sure it was. He comes flying down there. We go over there, and you know, we didn't have a search warrant. We didn't even 
know anything about a search warrant. I'd heard of it, of course. <laughs> we bang on the door, and somebody comes to the door, and we just push our way on in. But but they're really resisting like heck, and 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 you know now you're on really shaky grounds as far as you know just like searching all through the house and everything. And and we find we find they 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 resisted so much, and it was going to get out of control. That and we were on such shaky grounds. I mean, nobody even knew we were down there. We had, you know, my sergeant, our sergeant, we had the same sergeant. He didn't know what we were doing. Our captain didn't know what we were doing. None of the other guys around knew what we were doing, and and so we just finally let it go. So that was, yeah. But you live and learn, and you know, I got transferred from that. I made I made my bones. Everybody knew, you know, hey, this Gary, he's a hot shot, <laughs> and they started a station detective unit and. Uh, you know, who are they going to select out of the 50 sector? They wanted somebody from each sector. So, of course, I went to that. We worked, we wore suits and made cases and went, took them to court, took them down to file fel felony charges on for burglaries, house burglaries and uh, larcenies and, and other kind of smaller crimes out there in the neighborhood. So did that for the next couple of years. And uh, that's definitely, definitely a lot to, to unpack. So cut your teeth this is 1970s time frame throughout the yeah. probably the the beginning and middle of the 1970s worked your way up uh got training learned how learned how to become le legit police officer sounds like you got into a few kind of danger potentially really dangerous situations working working drugs nabbing nabbing criminal uh, criminals <laughs> uh just like the kind of the good guy you always wanted to be and then you get noticed by by the right people you've got potential and they say all right gary you're you're a detective at what point do you go from being a detective and working normal cases to working the kansas city mafia well that's again you know i have pretty good run in in, in that unit and we did some fun things and and kind of worked some of the bigger cases that those guys might have worked worked and got noticed and and during this time my friend bobby arnold from my hometown he'd been in an attack unit and they had a big shootout and then they ended up busting up the attack unit and and he through a series of connections and this is kind of important i know this doesn't seem important to a lot of people but to go to the intelligence unit and work the mob the intelligence unit is a small unit, 12 guys, two sergeants, one captain, and you work directly in the, for the chief, for the chief's office. There was no real chain of command between us and the chief other than two sergeants and the captain. Captain would meet the chief, talk to the chief all the time. There was a major and a colonel, but they didn't really, they were just kind of there. They had other responsibilities, and, and they didn't really get too involved in what we were doing. And so... It was it was a secret unit. It was kind of a unit that you know there was working the mob. There's always potential for corruption, and you know, and you also had to be trusted because they gave you a lot of freedom. You you could just you did. I used to say you could do whatever you're big enough to do, and the only thing you're constrained by is the law. You know, don't break the law in doing what you're trying to do. Other than that. You got a free reign when I became a sergeant later on. That's what I'd tell my guys. And that's the way it was. So you needed somebody you could trust. Well, Bobby's wife had worked with this Ray Kenny's wife. Ray Kenny had been one of the founding members of the intelligence unit. 
uh, when they first found it back in, I want to say 1960, maybe. And it was, and so they needed a guy and they wanted younger guys. The sergeant had some older guys that weren't doing anything and, and they didn't want to do anything. And they were looking for younger guys who were more aggressive. And so race told Sergeant Wisher, he said, you know, here's a guy, I, you know, I know a lot about him. Uh, I know his wife and my wife has known his wife for a long time. And he comes from a small town and he's, you know, he, he, he's honest and, and he doesn't seem to have too many bad habits any more than the normal. <laughs> and I suggest you take him. And he's, you know, he's been a really aggressive young policeman, made his bones in his own way. And so they took Bobby down there. And then when they had this opening, Bobby tells his sergeant said, here's a guy that I know, and I've known him since we were little kids. And if you ask around to buy him, you'll find he's an aggressive, good policeman. And, you know, so they asked me to come down there and take this next opening. So and then Bobby and I work in the same sector and, and partner up. So that's how I got down there. Uh, and, uh, you know, then we just, you know, we are the young, aggressive guys. I remember I had this one older guy, let's go out for a beer after work, Gary. I said, okay. I kind of like to drink back in those days. And, and we, uh, went to this bar and he's talking and, and he finally said, you know, Gary said, you don't have to work as hard as you're working. <laughs> you really don't have to work near that hard. I said, I looked at him. I said, Lee, I said, you know, I'm going to work just as hard as I want to work. Oh, 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 oh okay. <laughs> he never asked me out for a beer again. See, but we, you know, they just, they just, you know, they tried to make fun of us. That didn't work because our work was good. Sergeants yep. loved us. The captain loved us. And so they tried to make fun of us, but you know, I just turned around and make fun back of them. I never forget. I, I said, well, you guys, some guy was doing something. It was stupid what he was doing. He didn't know what he was doing. I said, oh, you flogging that dead horse again? I, I had a, there was a poster board up there and I drew a dead horse with, with a, a guy on its back with his legs up and the guy standing there with a whip. And he said, I said, oh, you're flogging a dead horse again, huh, Lynn? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so see, they, you know, we, I just threw it back at him, and Bobby wasn't bad as me. I'm, I'm a little bit bad about that, but he's a much nicer guy than I am. Yeah, but they were the old, know, that, they were the old guard, and you, you, you yeah, newcomers right. at that point in time trying to do the right <laughs> thing and be be aggressive and uh, making them, you know, probably those old timers who had gotten comf comfy in their job yeah. and in their role, and potentially with a certain amount of corruption, didn't want anybody to come in and rock the boat, and. Uh, well, you young guys were probably making them look a, mm -hmm. look a little bad and look like maybe they weren't doing their job so well. <laughs> yeah, man, man. And their only, and their, their, their uh, uh, defense, their only corruption was they were just lazy. Lazy. <laughs> they didn't want to do anything. They yeah. were just lazy. <laughs> no defense against that. Um, so who were some of the characters at the time in, in the mob that, that you guys were really focused on? When I went down there, of course, we've got a family, a crime family, yep. for the you listeners that, that don't, and viewers don't really know. Kansas City has a real deal, old school mob family, the Cosa Nostra family, yep. Sicilian based, had the making ceremony, the whole nine yards, have made men, have associates. They're not very big, so it's like they're really not even as big as one big crew in Chicago. But we've got it all. We've got an underboss and who kind of doubled as a consigliere and our boss has a brother. And it's a Savella family, Nick Savella. And, and Nick and his brother Cork 
kind of jointly, but Nick really ran the family. And then they had this underboss guy named Carl Tuffy DeLuna. And then there was, you know, associates and they were connected to different businesses around. Like one guy was, uh, was a real money maker for him. He was a made guy and had got caught in, a, in the middle of a hit one time or they didn't get the guy killed and had to do it. He actually beat the case, but he was a made guy and he, he ran a record store, Tiger Cartarella. And, and every booster in Kansas City fanned out throughout the whole Midwest stealing record albums. Back when record albums were really easy to steal and, and bring them in, fill that record shop up. And, and he was, he, everybody in Kansas City of a certain age, you ask them at a, at a um, like a, a joint setting, I'll, I'll like do programs. And, and if I say something about Tiger, I say, how many people here ever bought a record from Tiger Carter or Tiger's Records? Almost every hand will grow up, will go up. <laughs> Well, I bought one, you know, about three quarters of the price. He was buying for about uh, 50 or 25 cents on the dollar, 25 to 50 cents on the dollar and, and selling them for like 75 cents on the dollar out to the public. So, you know, you had all that. And I was mainly down around what we call the North End. It was close to downtown, the city market, Little Italy's all down in this kind of geographically small area adjacent to downtown and mm -hmm. all around the city market which most, most Italian Texans, see, they all came from Sicily. They all settled in a little Italy area around a big Catholic church and close to the city market. And they had the, the spaghetti joints as they used to call them. They, they got, had uh, produce businesses and, and other things like that. Cause uh, government jobs, when they first got here, government jobs, Irish already had them. The Germans had the better government jobs cause they'd been here a little longer. And so they had to make do. They had a, they were kept pushed out of everything. Every new immigrant society is like that even today. Your new immigrant, he has to start at the bottom. And so you got all these young, bright guys and move, come to Kansas City and Prohibition comes along. I mean, it's the same story in every city. It is. It and, is. And they kind of push out the old guys. And, and uh, Nick Savella kind of comes up through that. He's a real young guy during that time. And and, and so we've got this mob family and then I come in, well, Sergeant Wisher, Larry Wisher, he gives us an assignment. He has heard it. I don't know where he heard it, probably from the Bureau, because we work real hand in glove with the FBI. Whenever the, in a, the one squad or the organized crime squad, squad would get a new de uh, detective, new agent, they'd send him over to the intelligence unit to get to know us. And the, and the real old timers over there, they were always back and forth and really close with our sergeants and the captain. And because we fed all of our information to them because we were out looking and writing down license numbers and seeing who was where and what businesses they were going to and who their girlfriends might have been and trying to develop informants and, and, you know, just everything they were doing. The Bureau didn't do that quite so much. And... There's this one guy that I, I imagine somebody at the bureau maybe told Larry, I don't know, but he called Bobby and I in. He said, you know, there's a guy who just got out of the penitentiary named Jimmy Doherty, D-U-A-R-D-I. And he is a made guy and he supposedly is hanging out at this gas, or uh, used car lot at Gregory and Truce, which was kind of, it was a south side uh, compared to the city market. It was about 70 blocks south of downtown. And so we go out there and, you, you know, first thing you do, you do drive-bys. Mm -hmm. 
and write down some license numbers. Maybe it's a car lot, so maybe you go in, act like you want to buy a car, and just kind of look around, maybe find out who a salesman is there, and get a car, drive, pick up a few tags, go back the next day, pick up a few tags. Maybe it, this was a hard place to sit on, was sat down the street for a little bit, but you didn't want to sit too long because you did. See, a, a, a spot, if it turns out to be a hot spot, you don't want to burn it because then they'll quit going. Uh, so you have to be slick. And so we picked up enough tags that we picked up Jimmy Duarte's tag. We picked up a couple other uh, kind of mob associates tags. So we know, okay, this is a mob location. We do a background check on the business who has the licenses. We find another guy who's an associate. Uh, about that time, the bureau gets back and said, oh, yeah, I said, we've, we've got a case working on some, some fraudulent business loans or some fraudulent loans connected to that guy, Joe Sibiliano, that owns that car lot. Interesting. So we just keep poking around for a couple, three weeks. And then we want to, and Jimmy Duarte's there a lot, and we want to get some pictures. And, you know, we, we, you know, these other guys, they never used the cameras. They never did anything. I, I sound kind of uh, arrogant here when it comes to this. I don't want to keep putting them down. That'll be the last thing I say about it. But they, we had these cameras with, you know, 500,000 millimeter lenses, but they never use them. So we went to the, there's a, uh, one reason it was so hard to sit on right across the street for a block both ways was a uh, funeral home. I mean, not a funeral home, but a cemetery. Mm -hmm. So you can't really sit out in the cemetery because you stick out, stick out like a sore thumb if you just sit there. So we went to the guy that managed the cemetery. It's Bobby's idea. And, and we asked him if he'd set up a cemetery tent, like there was going to be a service. And it was cold enough that, that you could kind of get away with this. And, and we said, just close it in on all four sides. So then we'd drive up early in the morning before anybody would really get around. And we'd get in the tent and with our camera and our tripod. And we'd just take pictures directly you know we're looking right down their throat from just across the street and they didn't even notice we get, we did that for about a week and got a ton of pictures and got some great pictures of jimmy duarte and i never saved one of them <laughs> i should have taken some of those home with me and, and you know documented all the other things there was a guy in there that all of a sudden we weren't seeing anymore and he had a tow truck and i, I had his license i had so i had a name of a tow company and i checked the uh business license on the tow company found out he had a body shop about 10, 15 blocks away over on prospect. And, and like I said, all of a sudden he's there every day. And then all of a sudden he's not ever there. Hmm, something happened here. So we just go over there and just walk in. And, and this was unheard of for the intelligence unit at the time. They always just sat back and watched and wrote license numbers down. We just walked in. I put a badge on. I was so used to doing that anyhow. I said, hey, you know, I'm Kansas City Police. What are we doing over at uh, that car lot? Oh, 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 this guy. He was like, oh, oh, yeah, I used to. Those are some bad people. I don't want anything to do with him. Okay, so how you doing? How's your business here? What do you do here? Oh, who do we know in common? We have any, you know, those usual kind of things. We have any, know anybody in common. And and, you know, do you have any problems here? You know, anything I can help you with? You got any tickets I can take care of? And, and talk to his wife, works there with him, kind of butter her up a little bit and leave and come back and just, you know, talk to him about maybe uh, detailing the car out. And then he had a car for sale. He was kind of a, a half, half-assed used car salesman <laughs> himself. He'd find a deal on a car and fix it up a little bit. He'd do body work and had a body man working for him. 
fix it up, slick it up. And, and Bobby started talking to him about buying a car from him. He ended up buying it from him, actually. And, and I, I ended up having him detail my car in the end. But over that, all of a sudden, he, he really started liking us. And he had something on his mind. And finally, one day, he said, well, he said, I might as well go ahead and tell you. I said, well, John, what's that? He said, well, he said, you know, Carl Spiro was hanging out over there a lot. And, and he started telling us about some other guys, a guy named Leonard Crago. He said, they call him the Arab. He says, the scariest man I ever saw. And he said, what I used to do when they'd have meetings there, and, and there was another guy who in some case said some kind of a professional criminal. Uh, I called him uh, Strong, I think, Red Strong or something like that. And he said, he's some kind of professional criminal from out of town. He said, this Arab guy, he's some kind of a killer guy. And, and he and Carl Sparrow used to go back in a little meeting room back there and, and have meetings. And actually the office for the car salesman, car, car dealership or used car dealership. It was just a kind of a big shack is what it was. He said, but we had a garage there and we had a parts department in the garage that was adjoining that. And he said, I'd go back in the parts department and listen through the wall, see what they're saying. He said, man, he said, they work like heck to get this Leonard Krigo out of jail and to come up here and do something. He said, I don't know what he's going to do. So, hey, this is good. And then he tells us that he has his tow truck and his, his big secret. He, th he said, you probably already know this. I better go, go ahead and tell you. He said, I got a call from Carl once and, and he wanted me to meet him down here in South Central Missouri and he needed me to pull some uh, truck out of a ditch. And he said, I don't know exactly what he meant, but I knew there was something wrong about it. And he said, I got down there and they had a, a, a trailer, a tractor and a low boy trailer with a bulldozer on it. And he said, I pulled him out of the ditch and he said, that bulldozer was stolen. So I, I started searching reports uh, in the metro area, and I found about, oh, this was about a month or so before I, this happened, and, and so I knew about what date it was within a few days, and I found a stolen bulldozer just like he described, and we ended up, actually ended up tracing down that bulldozer a few months later, so he had sold it to some guy down there in the country. So, did you ever have any surveillance work or or personal interactions with the Savellas them, themselves, the top guys, or did they stay pretty kind of yeah. far away on the periphery, not interacting with the day-to-day? -day? Because by this point in time, Nick Savella was long time in power at the end, I would say, of his reign. And we'll get into some of the problems that came along with that. Um, did you ever have any personal interactions with those guys? You know, when Nick, Nick Savella was an interesting guy. He he was quiet. He he might come, he had a driver, a guy named Pete Tamburello. He might come to the city market. You'd see him talking to somebody down there. But I I personally never walked up and said, "Hey Nick, how you doing? <laughs> Tell me something." <laughs> FBI, a couple of FBI's that would do that once in a while, but. Uh, I never did that, but you know, you just, you see him and Pete down there and, and then they drive off. You might follow them a little bit and see where they went. They never really went too many places. Nick stayed back. He was like the Godfather. He was the puppet master of the Godfather. He pulled the strings from back behind. He had this Tuffy de Luna who was out there yep. and he would go to tell people, talk to people and see what they were doing. Tuffy was a, uh, he was a tough one to, to follow and find out what he was doing. 
there was always, you know, follow them to some business, then you would have to go research everything about that business and, and see who always maybe do a short, quick surveillance on it and see what kind of a spot it was. And, and so you would, you know, just track them around and see what kind of their, what their pattern was. We, we like, they would go to this Villa Capri a lot. It was at the pizza place. It will become famous later on. The reason why I, I mentioned this, you would go to the Villa Capri a lot, both day, afternoon, maybe, and nights. Uh, they had the social club. They called it the trap. It was the Northview social club, but they really, they called it the trap. For some reason, I never knew what the etymology of the, why they called it the trap. And so they would go down there and they play cards down there and we'd write down, like, write license numbers down, maybe pick up on somebody else who was down there we hadn't seen for a while, follow them away and see where they were going. And, and that was, you know, those were our days and hit some other spots that, you know, they would be at. And uh, uh, so, you know, really, we'd never really talk to any of those guys. We may fi try to find, they went to some business and there might be somebody there that, could enlighten you more about what they were doing, like I did with this John guy, this tow truck driver. Might go in and try to talk to them, but there was no use us even trying to talk to these guys. They weren't going to talk to us, and and so that's you know that was kind of the extent of you know if they saw me meet with Willie Comisano for a while, that would be an unusual meeting because what happens is you document these different meetings, you document where they're going. And then something else a month from now, or maybe if they've already got it documented or some other informants telling the Bureau something, because Bureau had some informants that were pretty highly placed. And so all of a sudden what that informant's saying or what they hear on another wiretap somewhere will then make sense because they've got these reports. And so they, at the time, there's a, there's a lot of, of, activity shall we say mm -hmm. going on there was more than than anybody could keep up with uh during, by 1975 and some of it had to do with the savellas some of it had to do with the Comisanos, some of it and 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 then there was this whole other mob war between the spiro brothers and the savella brothers yep. so it's uh it, it just got crazy uh, just we were constantly running around trying to figure out what was going on who was meeting who and there were bodies being found and it was just nuts in Kansas city by this, by this point in time, and probably for some time by the mid seventies had been big into Vegas in combination with Chicago, Milwaukee, and most other families across the country had a piece of Vegas, but the, you know, the, the, the edge of the Midwest was Chicago, Kansas city, Milwaukee, and poss possibly St. Louis, uh, as being, you know, the closest from the Midwest to Vegas and really kind of really running things. And Kansas City was a big, a big part of that. And you've done, you've done a lot of work yourself with respect to uh, documenting. I mean, you were involved in a lot of the, the investigations with respect to the Vegas skim. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that connection and kind of where you fit into the picture with respect to investigating uh, Kansas City and Vegas. Well, I was kind of like the, the low rung on the uh, <laughs> ladder here, but <laughs> the, the lowest figure on the totem pole in, in that investigation. But, you know, I was I was in there and I was part of it. I, I, it was. Uh, I mentioned the Villa Capri where they would go to. We, we had we had like probably a year or two. Uh, worth of, of 
surveillance reports of them meeting at the Villa Capri. So we have this mob war going on and they're stalking each other. These, these other two brothers, other brothers, the Spiro brothers, the Savellas, yeah. Spiros, and they're stalking each other. And we catch them doing that every once in a while too. Like you catch Carl or Mike or somebody at a place and then you'll see one of these other guys driving, you know, just like a policeman, like us. They were just like us. They would drive around and see, you know, where they were. And, and they were out trying to find people who were informants for them to help set down these upstart young Turk Spiro brothers. And the Spiro brothers, they didn't even know about the skim. We didn't know about the skim. The uh, Bureau knew, you know, it, it was probably going on, but they didn't know exactly how. Uh, they had, they knew more really about, and not our office, uh, St. Louis office and Las Vegas office and Detroit knew about something that Detroit and St. Louis had going on out there at the, at the Atlanta, I think, or Atlanta, Atlanta, but Kansas city, you know, they didn't know exactly what it was. Knew we had a really close relationship with the teamsters, but you didn't know, you, you know, you, you can guess but you don't really have the inside information. And so you got, that's where the wiretaps and the bugs come in. And, and so we, we hear, the Bureau hears that especially that they always talk about some of their plans at this Villa Capri, which is restaurant at Independence and Prospect, Rossi Strada, a longtime mob associate and uh, sports book owns it. And they always sit at the same table you know, people like they go in a restaurant all the time. They'll many times sit at exactly the same yep. table. And these guys are like, you know, God over there in that creatures of habit went into Villa Capri. So nobody else sat at their little banquet and tables. And, and Bureau had picked up from an informant that, you know, he had some what we call dirty talk at this one table about planting a bomb on a strip club owner that they wanted to extort some money from. So to get probable cause to put a microphone in there where they're talk, making these plans about different things and hopefully hear them talking about, you know, making some plan or getting some clue on a murder plot, you know, they get a affidavit and a, a order to put a bug in the Villa Capri, which is the famous bug that's in the movie Casino. Casino. It may make it look like it's in a corner store and it's up in a vent. Well, this was down on the floor, I think somewhere in that table. And so they get that, that bug in there and they start hearing stuff. And as a agent, my friend, Bill Lousy said, I never heard the song staying alive so much in my life. <laughs> that that uh, bug and the, tape from that bug but finally one night it gets kind of quiet and you can hear Tuffy de Luna and Cork Sabella talking and they're talking about Las Vegas and they're talking about 25 million dollars and they're talking about lefty and they're talking about the genius and they're talking about Jay Brown oh yeah he was he cashed that check at the Stardust remember Oh, you, uh, you know, and then somebody said, well, we in on that with them. I think that was shortly after the $25 million and the Teamsters and something about paying the Teamsters. And, and so that was enough to say, oh, well, we got, there's something going on here. We don't know what it is. Start figuring out who Alan Glick or the genius was Alan mm -hmm. Glick. And they did a little background on him real quick and find he's got a Teamsters loan and he's bought four casinos and they 
Jay Brown was Oscar Goodman's law partner, and and he was uh, he was a corporate counsel for Alan Glick at the Stardust and the Argent Corporation owned these four casinos. So you know it's it's building, and and like one of the next times, Tuffy's in there and they're talking about getting hold of somebody in Las Vegas, and Tuffy says, "Well, I got to find a phone," but there was a phone right there and he didn't use it. So you know when he says, "I got to find a phone," you know you got to find that phone. Pay we got to find that phone. And right. And, and Bureau, I tell you what, they had, they had, uh, I think three pilots, two, one, two of them they brought in. They had one here. They had one plane here. They brought in another plane from another office. They always had one on the ground and one in the air. Uh, when one ran out of gas, the other one could then get up. They brought in about 20 agents. They got a whole bunch of us from the intelligence unit and gave us FBI walkie talkies. And we laid on Tuffy and Luna and a couple other guys that were close to him, Cork Savelle, I think, and uh, maybe Joe Ragusa. We had, we had codes, they had all these codes that, like, uh, I remember Cork was cognac. It was always some kind of, Ragusa was rum, Tuffy was tequila, and so it was some kind of a booze that had the same <laughs> first initials, the name you called these people. And, and so we just started following them. Finally, they sat Tuffy down at this uh, hotel. It was at... Uh, it was an industrial area. It's kind of a nicer hotel, but it was an industrial area, but right next to I-435, right next to the, the Beltway freeway that goes around the city. And so catch him down there and he goes in and somebody, maybe probably not the first time, but when he stayed in there a long time, somebody probably got out and went up and just walked in the lobby and they seemed back on the payphone. So then, okay, here's the payphone. So now you got a pattern. Anytime he would leave his house, you just sit close and watch him leave his house, get somebody down there on that hotel. And you don't really have to follow him all the way down. Follow him around a little bit, but don't get burnt. Let him go if you think, you know, there's any problem at all because he was real, real tail conscious, real mm -hmm. tail conscious. He was looking for the airplane. He'd stop and just stare up in the air. <laughs> if, he'd see, if he'd see that airplane making a lazy circle around him while he just you know he'd go on he'd drive down in the airport we have a, an older airport it's close to downtown he'd drive down the airport and then drive out real fast because he knew a plane couldn't come into there mm -hmm. but i got him set down and and you didn't have to then follow him down there and they got enough probable cause to put a wire on those phones and then all they had to do is catch him get let's leave somebody down there and and when they'd see him pull up and go in, you know, from a van or a business, I don't remember exactly where they sat down there, then just call down at the wire room, say, okay, he's in. And then they just start listening to all four phones and whichever one he gets on, then they start listening to that phone and they can turn on the recording device as soon as they hear a little bit of dirty talk. So he's talking to this Joe Augusto who works at the Tropicana. So we're all focused on the Stardust. And Lefty Rosenthal and Alan Gleck, but he's talking to this guy at the Tropicana. So in the end, it really got confusing for everybody. In the end, there's two streams of skim. One coming from the Tropicana directly to Nick Savella. He developed that skim himself mm -hmm. without any help from Chicago. No Teamsters money, no help from Milwaukee. It was just him and this guy, Joe Augusto, who was now the, he was the, uh, the uh, show manager of the Follies Berger show. And, and all he was, he was from Sicily. He, he had a great Sicilian accent and he'd just been a con man all his life, but he was good. And he worked his way in with the people at the TROP and they wanted, and how he did this, 
he, he convinced them that he had connections to the two teamsters and of course through the mob you know those guys those guys that ran it there were several principals that ran it but they knew he had connections to the mob in Kansas City and they could get the teamsters loan that they wanted and they wanted to expand and they needed a teamsters loan to do it and so they thought Joe Augusto would do it so they let him have this position of authority and power in the casino and so Nick Savella, uh, first thing he does is tell his Teamsters people, don't give them a loan until I tell you to. And so he just withheld the loan. And Joe, you know, he just string them along. He, like I said, he was a great con man, so he could string them along. Yep. And, and, and so we're hearing all these conversations. Well, well Joe is repeating gossip because he hates Lefty Rosenthal. <laughs> and Lefty is really showing his butt at this point in time. This is during the time when the gaming commission, Nevada gaming commission is trying to kick him out. He's yep. having hearings and he's already been to court, been to, uh, been kicked out of the casino, uh, and then had an appeal one on appeal and came back into the casino. And, and so, and Nick, he knows that he does not want this guy to keep all this stirring up, stirred up, everything stirred up and in the newspapers and lefty was a guy who wanted to be in the newspapers. He wanted to be bigger than life. And, and he wants to stay in that casino because he knows that's his, you know, that's his golden ticket. He's already making 250 grand a year in like 1970s to be the casino manager. Plus he liked that control of four casinos. I mean, he was, mm -hmm. uh, this was like, I got my dream. <laughs> I got my horse and my gun. He got his dream. He owns four, or he's running four casinos yep. and he puts the sports book into one. He starts a sports book and hires women dealers and the blackjack tables. He was kind of an innovator. An innovator. Yep. He really was. He was also a top echelon informant during all this time For too. Most and, of the time. I think he, he probably <laughs> jerked it. He jerked the FBI off as much as he gave him good information because he was that guy. He was that guy. You could not trust that guy. But so Joe is reporting all this gossip about Lefty, and it really gets interesting because we get, uh, then we got another hidden microphone with Nick Savella meeting Tuffy DeLuna at a lawyer's office, his lawyer's office downtown. And they got the probable cause to put a bug in that uh, lawyer's office. When the lawyer wasn't there, you know, you could listen because they weren't talking law business. They weren't talking court cases. Mm -hmm. They were talking Lefty Rosenthal a lot. And they were, they were also talking about setting up a meeting with Joey Iupa in Chicago and, and a lot of really cool things. And so, you know, we hear them talking about, well, you know, we need to go talk to Lefty. I, one of the really cool things I heard on those tapes was uh, Lefty, I mean, uh, Tuffy Luna and Nick Savella are talking about whether Nick can call Lefty directly. Or does he have to go through Chicago? And they'd already talked about how <laughs> Chicago didn't want to believe anything bad about Lefty. And Joe Augusto is telling him he's a snitch. And and Tuffy's telling, you know, Nick that, hey, Joe says he's a snitch, but I don't really believe that. And, and Nick, he's saying, well, you know, in some ways he is because he uh, he tried to, to, in a way, blackmail Harry Reid, who was the... Uh, yeah president of the gaming control board, he tried to kind of like blackmail him by saying, well, you know, we had lunch one time, you know, you're, you know, you're with me, well, you know, what's going on here? And, and, and next mind that's being a snitch. He said, you know, he said, you're going to make those people mad. 
that we got to cool this lefty down. So they were counseling back and forth and lefty was, and, and Tuffy was always counseling Nick. And, and he said, and finally he said, you know, he said, we had a meeting in Chicago about this. I think you can talk to him directly. So then they start figuring out how to get the message to Lefty without anybody else knowing. And then Lefty, eventually he did call Nick and, and they got that phone call. And, base, and, and Nick is nice, but he keeps telling him, he said, you know, you're going to hurt a lot of people if you keep this up. You know, there's a lot of money at stake here and you're going to hurt people. And after that phone call, Lefty acts like he always said, okay, I'll calm, I'll calm down. I'll cool it, and but he can't cool it because if he does, he's just going to get kicked out of the casino. <laughs> and, and so they come back, and Nick is telling Tuffy about the call, and he said, I told him, just cool it, cool it. And Tuffy, Tuffy's going, yeah, but, you know, I, I think he might lie to you, Nick. <laughs> so it was, uh, it, it was really enlightening about how Nick Savella worked how he was, he was a diplomat. He was willing to talk and talk and talk and convince people to do the right thing before he ever resorted to any resorted uh, to violence, violence. And Tuffy counseled with him on that. He was, it was really enlightening to listen to those tapes. And, and we ultimately know that, uh, Rosenthal does eventually get, bl- get blown up. He he lives yeah. and lives out the rest of his life, but he does eventually get blown up. Most people believe that was out of Chicago, possibly to do with uh, Tony Spilatro, uh, of course, to do with all of the things going on with the skim. One thing I will say is a, a lot of people watch Casino and they see the the scenes with the politician who then uh, turns Robert De Niro's character away, who is Lefty Rosenthal from the, the yeah. gaming board and kicks him out. People don't know that that's based on Harry Reid. Harry Reid, who became very famous, I believe, as a, a either a senator uh, or a representative. A senator, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah he, senator. He, he, was a, he was a senator. He was a senator. Yeah. He was the, uh, and people don't uh, know he a, that he had a bit of a senator. dastardly, dastardly past. That that was he was that guy. Um, now, one question: We, you know, we're kind of along the lines of the movie, the movie Casino, a little bit. Uh, and I, I was curious if you know, if, are you aware that your name is mentioned in the book Casino? <laughs> yeah, there's a, a nice shopping area. I used to live close to it over in the city and I'm walking down the street and there's this young policeman I knew I said, Hey Gary, what's going on? Hey, how you doing? He said, Hey, and he said, did you know that I was reading this book about the mafia and your name's in there? I said, what? Casino, <laughs> yeah. I said, what? He said, yeah. And he told me the name of it. So there's a Barnes and Noble down the street. So I ran over to Barnes and Noble. And I started thumbing through and I found my name in there. That's right. <laughs> it's in there, folks, just because I was there serving, helping serve the search warrant on Tuffy Luna, the underboss's house. And that's the place where they found the famous, very famous uh, uh, records that he kept. Yeah. And that's uh, the funny thing is, so. Uh, if you if you equate to the movie, and I'm just going to read it. it for those people that have this book, it's page 303, and I'm going to say, uh, so I had listened. I to used Gary's, to know that page number. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I had listened to Gary's podcast for quite a while. Of course, big movie buff, so I had watched the the movie. Um, and when you when I first started listening to Gary's podcast, I was like, oh, it's that's that's pretty cool. He, you know, he was uh, you know he was a detective. He he you know he worked against these guys, but it never really registered. 
exactly to to what level and again i think gary underplays it a little bit until i started reading this book and i get you know i'm pretty deep into the book and it's page 303 and i come across and i'm just going to read it i come across the ep- excerpt that says uh quote less than three months after the marlowe meeting fbi agent shay airy and gary jenkins of the kansas city police intelligence unit knocked on carl deluna's door and presented him with a search warrant, allowing them to look for records and papers. Uh, and this, this actually, this scene is in casino. Uh, and uh, well, that's, that's you, <laughs> this scene of, <laughs> of, of serving the warrant. It, it's Artie Piscano in casino. Well, that's Tuppy DeLuna. And that's, that's Gary. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah, pretty cool. That that, like everything just yeah. kind of, uh, just kind of like <laughs> snapped together in my brain. And I, and it, I, that's when I kind of pieced it all together and I was like, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. So Tuffy was actually, it was a pretty nice guy. He was a, he was a good mobster. He was a real mobster, just like Nick Savella. And he modeled himself after Nick Savella. Nick's brother Cork was fiery. He, he was angry. He was blustery. Uh, he was yell at you and, and kind of crazy kind of stuff. But Tuffy was just like that. Tuffy had been an armed robber when he was young. He used to fly around the country and rob uh, uh, supermarkets on paydays, on people's paydays. Supermarkets used to have uh, $10,000, dollars $20,000 in them on the weekend to uh, cash checks before ATMs. And, and that was kind of what he did at first. And he, uh, you know, came up through the, that is his, his sister is married to Tony Ripesavellas, Nick's nephew. So he's blood, blood in the blood. Which that's what those guys like is, you know, you're not going to rat out somebody and testify against mm-hmm. them when you got family. You know, that's the thing about Kansas City, small town. Nobody ever testified. Nobody ever became a witness. They might have given yep. a little information now and then, but nobody ever became a witness, partly because you have all these extended family and it's kind of a small community. And, and so they know each other. And for the next, you know, the rest of their lives, they're going to be going to weddings and funerals and, and, uh, see each other at the grocery store these you know your rat family and your non-rat family and so it's uh, uh and so he was married into the family and tuffy was he was quiet he told his wife he said sandy he said make these officers some coffee so she made us some coffee as his kid came in and he like got all out of hand was yelling and and he told sandy said sandy said call so-and-so and have him come over and get rick you know he's just quiet as heck and and I never forget at the last uh, pledge. You should have put this in. I'll tell you a little story about where that came from in a minute. But he told Shay Air. He knew Shay. Shay had been um, a mob uh, investigator for a long time. He and Bill Owsley were the main mob investigators for a long time in Kansas City. And he said, Shay said, you might as well come downstairs. That's where the good stuff is. <laughs> and, and that's where they found the notes. So, uh, yeah, here, here's how Nick. I never talked to Nick Pelleggi. I tried to get him to be on my documentary, and, and then he bailed out at the last minute. I tried to get him to come on the podcast, and then he just simply refused to. Uh, but uh, he, uh, uh, there was a newspaper article written on the 10th anniversary by a local reporter named uh, Bill Norton, and he lifted all that directly from that newspaper article, directly. And I don't think, I don't know if he attributed it to it or not. I've never gone back and looked. I don't think there's any footnotes in that book, but maybe there is. But he lifted all that. There's another guy, uh, Harold Nichols. I think he quoted him. And, uh, you know, it's just, it was all directly from 
Bill Norton interviewing us and writing that newspaper article. So, but not not to take anything away from Pledgey, other than he stood me up twice to <laughs> be on my show. He did call me. I talked to him. I said, you know, I'm the guy that you you know putting my name in there, and that's when he said he'd, he'd be in my documentary, but then he wouldn't. He bailed out. Cost me a air, round trip airfare that for myself and for a cameraman, I was going to fly back to New York. But um, he he did do his work. He'd come to Kansas City, and uh, this retired FBI agent Bill Owsley had taken a lot of stuff home, and he was the case agent on all this. And and he spent like three days in Kansas City talking to Bill and going through papers and all that. So he did do his work, but but he did lift that article directly from that stuff. <laughs> Um, so eventually, uh, Nick Savella dies in 1983. Eventually these guys go down in one way or another, but before they go down and, uh, you know, maybe without getting too far into it, because I want to be respectful of time, they have the, uh, the Spiro Savella war, which you've covered in a documentary. I believe it's called, uh, brothers against brothers, which is on right. Amazon. You can go buy it for, I believe, uh, uh, Nine ninety nine. Uh, it's pretty no, reasonable. You can, rent it, you can rent it for two ninety nine. Well, so. there you go. You can rent it for two ninety nine. Uh, and it was. Uh, I think you did it about four or five years ago. So it's still there. Mm-hmm. I'll put the link in the video description. But for those who are unaware of Kansas City's history in this particularly violent time, uh, can you give us a little bit about the uh, Savella Spiro War? So, like I said, all this time, you know. That, they they put the bug in, then they figure and they get the the wiretaps going, and really they kind of back off. All they got to do now is listen and trace it to other cities, and and a lot of work farmed out to Chicago and Milwaukee and Cleveland because they know they're involved, and then in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. and and so it's kind of you know, there's not so much need for a lot of manpower, but at the same time, this Savella Spiro War kicks off. And so we go into that, and our job was to do nothing but follow this uh, one Spiro brother around. See, they had a uh, what really kicked it off. This was before the uh, arrest or anything came down. It was uh, when was it? It was it was before. I think it was after we served the search warrants. But anyhow, I think it was seventy eight. And the three Spiro brothers, they'd already killed the oldest brother several years before. Somebody had, and, and he was a guy that Nick Savella would have to approve of his murder. The three younger brothers were in a tavern called the Virginia Tavern, and they had been plotting. They wanted to move in on Savella's a little bit, and they wanted a revenge, I believe, for the oldest brother that had been killed. So can I, can I stop you for for a second? Yeah. Were these uh, were the Spiro brothers upstarts? Were they younger than the Savellas, yeah, or were they, they the same age? No, they were younger. See, like younger. Nick Savella is more like my mom's age, and and uh, Carl DeLuna and Cork were more like my mom's age at the time, and and Cork uh, Tuffy was more like he was probably fifteen years older than me, so they were the older. These guys were more like my age at the time. I think Carl might even been a couple years younger. So they were younger guys. They were coming up. They were never taken in 
close into the mob. They were they, always they were not kind made guys. Outsiders. They were like the blue collar. <laughs> they were like a blue collar crew. <laughs> So, and they were pretty good thieves, especially the youngest brother, really good thief. And the oldest brother was too. And they made a lot of money off of them, but they were never in close. They were just associates, not made. Right, right. Okay. And so they're, like I said, they want revenge for Nick and they want to move in. He's, Carl Spiro was interviewing people, if you will. I talked to a Peckerwood, a non-Italian guy that he interviewed about, you know, come with me. Because he was getting non-Italian guys. He got this Leonard Krigo out of jail just to be on his team, shall we say, and his crew. And he sent Leonard Krigo uh, that my informant told me about. He sent him in on a Savella bookmaker and a, and a partner in a business that Nick Savella owned, a meat, another meat market. And he robbed him. And Krigo was so crazy that he put the guy in the trunk of his car after he robbed him. He got about 10 grand off of him because he was a booking. He had a lot of cash there. <laughs> and he started, he had two guns and he fired into the trunk of this big old Lincoln a whole bunch of times. He never hit the guy. The guy got behind his grandson told me, he said he got, I, grandpa got behind a tire in there that was loose and he never hit him. And, and the stupid guy yells out, you tell Nick Savella that the Arab's back in town. And, and that's what everybody called him was the Arab. And everybody knew the Arab was with Carl Sparrow by then. So, you know, they figured out that Sparrow was making some kind of moves here. Yeah. And so then they start putting together guys and they start stalking the Sparrows. The Sparrows are stalking them. And, and like Joe Sparrow hides outside of Tuffy's house and shoots at him with the deer rifle one night, misses him. They got a bomb. The Spiro's got a bomb they're going to plant on Tuffy de Luna. Well, Tuffy and a couple other guys, we know, we're pretty sure it was Tuffy. He takes three guys one night to the Virginia Tavern, and all three Spiro brothers that are still alive are in there, and they, they come in the back door, and they, they see Carl, and, I mean, Joe and Mike sitting at a table to their left, and, and two guys spin off towards that table and just start shooting at them, and they go down. Carl Sparrow's across the room by the front door on the phone, and the guy with the shotgun, who turned, was probably Tuffy DeLuna, chases him out the front door, and they're like running down Admiral Boulevard, which is a, a four-lane wide, pretty good-sized street. It was night, so there wasn't a lot of traffic, so he's out there with his 12-gauge shotgun, pump shotgun, chasing Carl down the street. And finally, he, he fires around at him, and he takes him down. But he doesn't go up and give him the coup de grace. And Carl is crippled, and he's paralyzed from his waist down the rest of his life. But so it's really on now. I mean, the gloves are off, and it's full-on war now after this. That's when the, the Spurrows, they get this remote-controlled bomb. Carl gets his dynamite from Arkansas, and he gets another professional criminal to make the uh, remote-controlled detonating device. They get it under Tuffy's car, but it won't go off. They're not close enough to it. And, but we had an informant in with Joe at that time, and we ended up getting recovering the bomb and taking off Joe and getting him a conviction. Well, right after his conviction, he's over at a uh, uh, storage facility, and he goes to go in it, and he has dynamite stored in there and guns. And the dynamite explodes, and it looked like maybe dynamite started on the outside, but there's sympathetic explosion on the inside, and it just blew out the whole end of this storage facility, plus his car was sitting there and blew it all to pieces. Killed him. They killed Mike at the Virginian, so now there's only Carl left. 
So it's still war on Carl. They're still I've planted bombs on him uh, once, and his nephew found it. But finally, in like 1984, about the same year I got promoted to sergeant, they got a bomb underneath Carlsboro with a remote device and and blew him up. He, he had a used car lot going. He was he wasn't really selling cars. He was selling drugs and guns and buying swag from boosters and reselling it to people. And and he was, he was a delighted dealer by that point in time. And and it blew him clear out of the top of the shack, him in his wheelchair, and dumped him out in the parking lot. It was, it was unbelievable. So that's the end of the Spiro War, and and the Savellas are under in trial about this time with uh, the guys from Chicago, Cleveland, and Milwaukee, and and they end up the 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 leadership all goes to prison for quite a while. They're done yeah. really. Nick Savella dies, yep. just before the trial. Yep, and uh, you know the. The KC mob uh, limps on. I believe it's uh, Willie the Rat Camisano steps up next. And I think eventually his son uh, steps up, uh, who's, I believe his son recently recently passed away in the last uh, year or two years. He did, um, a couple of years, uh, when, when COVID started. He got COVID early on. Then he had a stroke while he, had, while he yeah. was in the hospital from really bad long-term COVID. And, and then he had a stroke and, and he died out of that. So they say Johnny George Shortino is the boss now. I don't. I don't know. You know. Yeah. They're still. I, I, I those guys it's... still get together. There's still kind of a structure around. There's there's something going on. There's probably a sports book going on. We yeah. don't have uh, legalized gambling yet here. But it's certainly certainly not like uh, you know the the heyday in probably the '60s and in '70s under the yeah. under the Savellas. Much like you know most other families across the across the country, with the exception of a few. Um, you know, many have become defunct. Sounds like Kansas city is not quite there. Uh, I don't want to say it's on its last legs, but it's not where it was in the heyday. Uh, eventually you get promoted and, uh, well, you, you work out the rest of your career and you retire in the nineties. And then I came back uh, to the intelligence unit for a couple of years, but uh, it was kind of uh, anticlimactical. By <laughs> yeah, uh, you you take took down take down the uh, the big bosses, so to speak. Um, it's probably kind of like, well, who else who else is there to take down? I'm sure there always was, uh, you know, the the next guy up from a from a criminal standpoint. But the mafia is a pretty big pretty big target. Um, so eventually, you retire and. You become, uh, you go back to to school and uh, you get your degree to practice as a lawyer. What made you do that? <laughs> oh, because I never lived up to my potential when I was young. <laughs> I never did what I was capable of doing, and now I've got time to do it. <laughs> and uh, what kind of law did you practice? At my retirement ceremony, this guy was kind of running as a friend of mine, uh, and uh, Colonel Lynch, and, and he said, well, he said, I got in Gary's file and he said you know it took him 30 years to get his undergrad degree <laughs> and it did. i started i started 30 years before that <laughs> and finally got it just as i retired and then went to law school it took me three years to go to law school and i worked for myself uh i i had uh i had an offer from a judge to be his clerk but i told him i said i've had enough of working for the government i just work for myself and i did i, I tell you what i did i did a lot of uh, uh used car 
fraud cases, uh, Missouri Merchandising Practices Act. So it was a good, you know, it was, I had a bad guy now and I had the good guys to, who had bought the cars and been cheated. And so I did that, but I, you know, I did a ton of police divorces and traffic tickets for sons and grandsons of cops and, and then their friends. And, you know, just kind of build a practice and just a general practice. I, uh, you know, just what, whatever came my way. And by the end, I did some wills and some estate plan stuff, simple stuff. You know, if you had a lot of money, I'd send them to somebody else. But if it, you know, it was like most of us, you got a, you got an IRA and you got a pension, you got a home, <laughs> maybe, maybe you have a yeah. vacation home. Why, you know, that's, that's pretty straightforward kind of stuff. Do you still practice? No, I don't. I finally retired. Uh, second retirement. <laughs> second retirement. Yeah, I practiced from uh, what two thousand till about twenty. I practiced twenty years, so I was twenty-five years on the police department, twenty years as a lawyer. I mean, most people would consider either one of those things to be incredibly accomplished, and well, you did. <laughs> you did both. So kudos, kudos uh, to you, and and uh, well. For the last 10 years, uh, it seems like you're, you, I, I get the impression that you're somebody that likes to stay busy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, and right. for the last 10 years or so, uh, you've been, I would say, you know, at the bleeding edge of, of what has become podcasting in the mob genre. Uh, you run yeah. Gangland Wire and you've done, last count, I think something like four or 500 different episodes, which I could only aspire to at this point. That seems so far off <laughs> yeah, on the like horizon. Um, <laughs> what made you start a podcast? Well, I don't know. I'd done, I did uh, the first movie, Gangland Wire, and I'd done a couple of other movies and kind of civil war subjects. Uh, yep. What would it be? Uh, Negroes to hire be like, what'd it be like to be a slave in Missouri? And uh, freedom Seekers stories from the Western Underground Railroad, writ, written a couple of uh, young adult fiction companion books to those pieces and about the Underground Railroad out here in Missouri and Kansas. Mm -hmm. And then I did Gangland Wire, and I don't know, I guess I was just looking for something to do. Uh, you know, I had a website already uh, for Gangland Wire, just uh, my wife could do websites and she made me a website. Uh, I, I, I was, I tell you what, uh, Jacob, I was, I was listening to a podcast. You start hearing about this podcast thing. And so I'm mm -hmm. interested and I listened to Serial. It's one of the early ones and I'm listening to it and it's, man, this is, this is great. This is cool. I really like the podcast. And, and then I thought, well, you know, they're just telling stories. And I, I was going around by that point in time, I had uh, to, to promote my movie. You budding documentary filmmakers out there, it's really hard to make any money. I've been blessed to pretty well break even on all everything I've done, but you only do it by going out and promoting it. And what, how you promote it is you go to any group that'll have you and talk about your subject. Oh, there's a ton of groups out there. They don't mm -hmm. pay, mostly they don't pay anything. Uh, Rotary Club and all kinds of service organizations and churches and that. So I'd been doing these programs and, and talking about, you know, my experiences and the mob and, and showing clips from the movie and, or maybe showing the whole movie and, and at a library and then talk, taking questions and talking afterwards. And I kind of noticed that people, you know, they, they seem to like to listen to me talk. Now I never thought about that before, but, it seemed like they do. I've noticed they were just real quiet and nobody was getting up to leave. 
And, and so I thought, well, maybe I have a little bit of skill here. Then I, I listened to this podcast and I thought, man, well, how do you make a podcast? I could tell my, tell some of my, my own personal stories. And then, you know, I didn't really know how far I was going to go, but I'd at least do that. And I knew this guy that had a little internet radio show and I got a hold of him. He said, well, yeah, we can come down and record that. And so I went down and recorded a bunch of what I just said and more and more detail and, and several episodes and threw them up there and, you know, seemed okay. And it was fun. I liked doing it. And, uh, I was practicing law, but I, you know, it uh, is the highest paying part-time job I ever had, which is what I kind of wanted out of it. I never wanted to, to go into it, hammer and tong. I, I just, I, I don't know. It was just, uh, it, it never really, I, I, it was okay. I liked helping people, but it was, it's extremely hard. And it's, uh, you, you got to work at getting paid all the time. And mm -hmm. I, I just, I was never that comfortable. I'm more comfortable working for the government, I guess. <laughs> and so I go into this and so I do the podcast and, you know, I've got time and I go research and I thought, I'll go research another story. And then I figured out you could call people up that had a book and, and get yeah. them on the phone and had rudimentary kind of uh, ways to uh, tape a call is what I use. And then this guy could tape calls a little bit. It was always dicey that he was not rigged very well for taping calls. But I'd tape these guys and we'd do a show and tape them. And, you know, next thing I know, I've got, you know, 50 or 60 episodes in. I'm getting a little bit of a following and people are, you know, commenting and getting some feedback and a few people like it. And I'm getting, you know, building more in episodes or listen to got those analytics and more and more. And so I, I just kept it up and, you know. I split, split ways with him and just do it out of my house now. And uh, I mean, all you really need is a, a decent microphone and a computer. <laughs> You're yeah, in these days. You have a, yeah. The entry level is, is low. And it's and now you can, and now I'm on YouTube. I didn't used to even mess with YouTube, but now I even put it on YouTube. I would say uh, 80 to 90% of my audience is on, is on YouTube. So YouTube is really? a it's a critical component, but it's also the thing that takes me the longest because I'm very particular about the, yeah. uh, my editing approach and, and, you know, dubbing in pictures and, and things of that nature. Yeah. And I'm terrible in front of a camera. So I'm always cutting out my mistakes. And, and yeah, as I've can, gotten, you can cover yourself up with a picture. Yeah. Well, stuff. I do believe me. I do that. I do that. And, uh, <laughs> what I've been doing this year, one getting more into interviews and I plan to to do that because just as you said uh there are there's no shortage of people to to talk to right. that have stories and quite frankly the thing that has surprised me most is most people are like if you just ask them they'll say yes to coming yeah. on on your show that's exactly how you know how you came on my show is I, I reached out and said, Hey, I'm changing the name of my podcast. It's a little bit similar to your podcast. <laughs> I, I don't mean any offense. I hope you don't mind. Uh, and yeah. by the way, I would love to have you on my show as a longtime listener. And it just, you know, it worked, worked out. Uh, but yeah, it's um, the barrier to entry for podcasting is so low right now. Uh, there are platforms that are just so tailor made that make it so easy. And all you have to do is computer, decent microphone setup. And, uh, if you're feeling like, you know, frisky, if you want to work on your, your, your background, 
uh, for YouTube. That's not that hard either. You can buy most of this stuff on, on Amazon. And what people don't see outside my background is just the pure chaos going around, you know, going on around me. Uh, but the background looks good, but yeah, it's, it's been fun and you've been doing it for 10, for, for 10 years. I can only hope to, uh, you know, to, to do it for that long and pump out as many episodes as, uh, as you have, uh, what has been your, either your favorite guest or your favorite episode that you've, that you've worked on? Mm, well, uh, I don't know about a lot tough of, question with that much content. Yeah. <laughs> a, 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 a lot of, uh, of fun guests. I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, I, I, and this isn't a famous guy, but I started working with this guy named Cam Robinson. And, mm, uh, Camulus. Really Camulus <laughs> Robinson and uh, Camillus. I don't know how you pronounce it. I pronounce it. I finally said, can I call you Cam? He said, yeah. And, and he was a lot of fun to work with. I haven't, haven't done anything. He just wrote a book. So, yeah, he wrote that book with uh, the uh, wife of Frank Calabrese Jr. Uh, he yeah. was a Chicago what was her name? Swan, a Swan song, a Chicago mob wife story, Lisa Swan. And I interviewed them, of course. And so, you know, I'm trying to think of mob guys that I've interviewed that were a lot of fun. Oh God. I know, I know there's somebody out there. Oh, Sal Polisi. I love Sal Polisi. I still talk to him every once in a while. He's yeah. a, he's a good guy. He's, he's, he's gone another, he, he got kind of tied in with uh, a guy wanted to have him like be on there all the time. And I don't really want uh, a mob guy to be my co-host. Uh, I mean, no offense, Saul, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I just don't want that. You know, I'm a policeman. I'm the only policeman that has a podcast. I'm the only law enforcement that has a yeah. podcast. Uh, there's an FBI lady that has an FBI podcast and there's some other true crime things that have some law enforcement people on them. I'm the only law enforcement guy in the mob genre and, and I'm just, I'm going to keep it that way. But I really like Sal and I talk to him every once in a while today. He's got so some he, good, he was good stories. My favorite podcast. Yeah. Everybody yeah. And he's a, he's a great, uh, he's a really good storyteller too. He's been featured he is, on yeah. documentaries. The only thing I ever question uh about not just sal but other people who who were in the life who are informants who are now out of the life are just the validity uh of some of the stories and just <laughs> are they embellishing are they not and i think that's well, part sure. of the part of the fun of it but uh sal the facts get in the way a good, of a good story Jacob. right right, right. <laughs> you got a lot to learn right. man <laughs> i know i know you're right you're right this is entertainment oh, yeah, nobody just, cares yeah, about just... the facts you have to stick pretty close to the facts, but if it's your personal memoir, then you might drift yeah. off a little bit. I, I don't know. I don't really care. <laughs> and to me, it's just fun. Nobody's footnoting to this work. There's no academic papers are going to be written uh, out of the, out of this podcast. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, I don't know if you get this. Um, one of the biggest things since the outset of the podcast points of feedback that I've gotten and I've gotten so much better, but pronunciation, the, the oh, pronunciation God. police come out in full force <laughs> anytime yeah. I, I, I make an error. And I, I did make um, one one error in my Raymond Patriarca, and I'll explain that in a minute, my Patriarca episode. Uh, so there's a uh, there's a city in Massachusetts that is uh, pronounced Worcester, 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 Worcester. some, some yeah, variation Worcester. of that. 
uh, but it's spelled W O R C E S T E R Warchester. It's spelled Warchester. Warchester. <laughs> uh, to 99% of the country, you would read it uh, phonetically as Warchester. And I did that. Yeah. Uh, and it was in like the first three minutes of part one of, of my Patriarcha episode. And within a couple of minutes of posting it, it was immediately comment after comment after comment uh, going, it's Worcester, 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 you idiot. And uh, well, that's good. That, that means a lot. Of people are listening <laughs> yeah well yeah that and that that one was a big mistake so i've had to like you know if, if i leave the video up i just have to own up to to the fact that that was definitely a mistake but there are people that are so particular and i hear uh patriarcha i hear lots of people say raymond patriarcha pay pay and i have so many people that are like it's not pay it's path patriarcha and i'm like really like that out of all the content i'm producing and i love that people are listening and and are and are interested and really passionate but that's the thing you focus on and again i don't i'm not trying to like put down my my audience i uh, you know i'm building a small following myself and uh they're very passionate and uh very particular about their pronunciation. Yeah. So I'm just trying to yes. keep up. I don't know if you ever get that or not. Oh God, I just have had two recently. One was Bobby, I said DeCicio, who is a, he was Gambino's, uh, he was Gotti's underboss that got blown up as De Chico. Uh, De Chico, yeah. De Chico, <laughs> and, and then I did, um, uh, uh, oh God, I just had it on the top of my tongue. I did uh, uh, De Chico and, uh, God, I just slipped my mind, but I did another one just here. Oh, uh, uh, Napoletano, Sonny Black, it's mm -hmm. Napolano, Napolta Napolitano. Napolitano. They don't, don't pronounce the I. The I is not pronounced according to his, the guy that's married to his cousin and somebody okay. else mentioned it. I, I pronounced it wrong, Napolitano. Yeah. It's not, you don't pronounce that I, not, not Napolitano, it's Napolitano. Wow. It's well, then that it's means almost that... said like one syllable. One guy said, I've never heard that name pronounced in three syllables before. Of course, I'm, you know, a little more Southern. I might <laughs> draw something out, but uh, so Napoletano. that means 99.9% per of content creators out there are mispronouncing it. So yeah, likely, that's, yeah. I always find it interesting. So it's just funny stuff that you don't expect to run into when you're producing a, a podcast. <laughs> and I guess I should have expected it, but you know, myself coming from, Midwest, uh, and quite honestly, like not having grown up anywhere near uh, Italians in any way, shape or form and never having to, to say anything but very plain names uh, coming into this genre. And you've got, you know, very, you know, very creative names, multiple, multiple syllables. It took a while to like, just get used to to saying it and it took practice. So I'm, yeah. I'm sure that sounds really, really awful, but it's, uh, it is true. So <laughs> anyways, <the> it is. <laughs> so Gary, uh, I want to thank you for, for coming on, okay. uh, Jacob. amazing stories, your life. Uh, although you, again, I'll just say you downplay it, uh, incredibly interesting. You're incredibly accomplished. And, uh, you know, I was very excited to, to get a chance to speak to you and get to know you. So thank you so much for coming on my show. Well, thank you, Jacob. Thanks for having me on. And uh, everybody else out there, if you're still listening in, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, don't forget, as I always say, to, to like, subscribe, 
uh, you know, turn on the bell, get notifications, share the episode where, wherever you can. Uh, and then, of course, as soon as you're done watching this, uh, if you haven't already listened to Gary's podcast, please go over to Gangland Wire. Uh, I'm going to drop the link to his documentary, Brothers Against Brothers, uh, on Amazon in the description of this video. So please go go check it out. Go rent it. Go buy it. Um, and yeah, share uh, share Gary's work and go follow him. He's got a Facebook page uh, we didn't talk about. It's got 50,000 members uh, that post uh, really amazing mob historical mob photos almost daily. Uh, so please go check that out. Uh, but as I, you know, as I end every episode, grazie. Thank you for listening to the Gangland History Podcast. If you'd like to donate to the show, check out our Patreon channel. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. If you're an audio-only listener, subscribe via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.